All right. Well, uh, welcome back to our study of the Book of Romans. We're in Lesson 15 today, The Benefits of Justification by Grace Through Faith, Part 3. And we're looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 11, in anticipation of next week's completion of the chapter, and that is verses 12 to 21. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the word comfort. Comfort. Just hearing the word is comforting. And we use that word a lot in very in a lot of different applications. But I think one of my favorite ways that we use that term is the words comfort food. And you know, it's on a day when it's cold and things haven't been going as well as you would have hoped. And it's just been a long day. And you're like, what should we have for dinner tonight, honey? Because it's been a long day and none of this happened on time. And here we are. What are we going to do? Let's get some comfort food. Now, everybody has their particular comfort food. That is, that food when you're feeling kind of sad, feeling lonely. And then around this time of year, and I'll just throw this in here. When your family's dispersed a little bit and you're like that feeling of, where is home? And comfort food in our culture typically has a couple of different things. Number one, it's something you kind of crave. But number two, it usually, usually re-identifies you with your past, your family, your home life. You grew up on this. This is the food that feels like home. Because even when you're far away from home, if you get a little bit of comfort food, sometimes it makes you feel better. Now, in the South, okay, if you grew up in the South, the, 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 the real South, then you know that comfort food can be anything from biscuits and gravy, fried okra, right? right? Some of you are like, what? You know? Liver. L- liver for some. Okay, now you're crossing over. You just went north of the Mason-Dixon line. You just went Massachusetts on me, Alan. Okay? But there's those comfort foods that you know, man, that's my thing. That's my go-to place. Comfort. The Bible also talks about comforting one another. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1. It talks about God has comforted us so that with the comfort that he's comforted us in our afflictions, we too can comfort others. Interesting. God comforts us in the midst of our affliction so that we too can then in turn comfort other people. Which leads me to the ultimate comfort, and that is the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14 and 15, of course, when the Lord is giving the the last instructions to the disciple before his crucifixion, he talks to them and he says, now guys, it's going to be to your advantage if I go away. That's an interesting thought. Because they're like, dude, if you ever leave, we're host. You're everything. And he said to them, it will be to your advantage if I leave. Because I will send you the comforter. The Holy Spirit is called five times, at least in the book of John, the comforter. In what respect is he to comfort us? He's not comforting us to say, you're good. It's not a Disney movie. You're good. You be you. I want you to be comfortable with who you are. It's not a Disney movie. He's comforting us in that we used to be God's enemies. And now we have become God's friends through the atoning work of Christ. And we've been brought into a relationship and reconciled. And what used to be, I'm not comfortable in his presence ever. We are now to be comfortable in the presence of God and in what Christ did. It's really the doctrine of assurance. If you just take the comfort food idea back, when you're feeling lonely and you're not at home and things and you eat that food, there's a warm reassurance of my past and who I am and a moment of kind of bliss. The work of the Holy Spirit is not just meant to make us feel good, but the work in this passage we're going to look at with the work of the Holy Spirit, three different ways he brings assurance, I think you're going to see the connection really carefully as he is meant in this passage to bring comfort and give assurance to you of your relationship with God on a daily basis. If you're a Christian, 
God's not mad at you. Everybody's fine. And sometimes it's easy to wake up as a Christian even and feel like God's mad at me or, you know, my relationship is strained or I'm only one of the tangential Christians. The real Christians have a real relationship with God. The insiders do. The good people. But as lousy Christians, we're pretty much just like on the fourth court of the temple and we're just waiting for God to come out and say, okay, I saved you, but I don't like you. (laughs) Guys, this passage in particular is meant to give us assurance of our insurance in Christ in the new covenant. All right. Hopefully this will find comfort today, or all of you will rush out to go to Cracker Barrel. (laughs) With the white gravy. Oh, wait a minute. I do have a story. Sorry, for those of you who think it's going to be random today. Yes. Um, No, the material I hope is really good. When I was a teenager um, living in Virginia, my youth group from my home church, we went to Florida for a a youth conference. And on the way down there, this is the 1970s, so we're not as cool. There's no internet. Everyone doesn't know the regional foods. We stopped at a truck stop in Georgia to eat, and there's two buses of teenagers. We get out, we go in there, and the lady's taking the orders at the counter, and Eric Smith is sitting next to me, another teenager, and she says with his breakfast, would you like grits with that? To which he says, yeah, I'll take one. (laughs) He had no idea what they were, right? Okay. All right, page page one of our notes. Romans chapter 5, 1 to 11. We've already looked at, remember, the benefits of being justified are in this passage. The first one we've looked at is a new relationship with God, verses 1 and 2. Namely, we have peace with God and we have access to God. Secondly, last week, we looked at a new purpose in God, and that is we boast in the hope of the future glory of God in all of this salvation. And secondly, we boast in our trials currently, which have purpose in God. And so we've looked at those two things. If you'll note on the left side, I just put the words faith, hope, and love, because Paul is using those three words in these sections. It's in the verses one and two, he talks about our faith. In verses two to four, he talked about our hope. And in this section we're looking at today, a new assurance from God, verses 5 to 10, he's talking about love. Faith, hope, love. First Corinthians, he talks about those three are the greatest, but the greatest of these is love. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. So if you're checked out and you're working on your Christmas list, you'll know. This passage is going to explain to us that the Holy Spirit is a gift. He was given to us. And there are two things in this passage that he does. He reminds us, and he gives us a reflection on something. He reminds us of Christ's death on the cross, and that God truly loves us. Look what he did for you. And then secondly, he's going to say, and future-wise... Future-wise, there will be no wrath. Kind of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. In this passage, what it's telling us is this. The Holy Spirit's been given to give assurance of those two things. That God has loved you and does love you. Look at what he did for you. While you were unable to do anything for him, and then secondly, he will protect you from the wrath that comes. What's going to be the consistent theme under those two things the things that are exactly the same are this. We did nothing to earn it or to keep it. That's going to be the reflection point. Because he's going to do the Dianu three times of, even more than that, even more than that, God loves you, but here's the thing. He did it while you were at your worst. The argument in here is, while you were yet sinners, while you were ungodly, while you did nothing, while you were helpless, he uses three times. Why does he say that? It's not to say, see how much God loves you and you're not any good, but rather, you did nothing to earn it, and he loved you at your very worst. Paul makes the argument then, if that's the case, how much more? If he paid the ultimate price for us, and he loved us when we're completely unreconcilable, 
How much more will he give us then, having done all of that? In Christ now, the benefits that come to us, how much more will they be? God's already paid the ultimate price. You know, it's like, and I'll do the Disney World illustration. You do a family vacation, you save your money, you finally go to Disney World. And your children are very excited that you paid that price. You get them there, it's a million dollars to do it. <laughs> you get them in the park, and the child's wondering, are we going to be able to have lunch? <laughs> well, maybe not at those prices. <laughs> but the reality is, if you've done all that, you probably are planning, because you're a good dad or mom, to buy lunch for your children. That's Paul's argument in this passage. If Christ did all of that when you could do nothing, then just think of what he will do. He'll save you from the wrath to come and all of that. Okay? So that's the big picture of the passage. If you fall asleep, you will have already known what we're about to talk about. All right, so let me read here in the middle of page one, and we'll jump into our actual text. A new assurance from God, verses 5 to 10. And hope does not disappoint, thank you, Anne, from last week, before the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, there's his first point, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that's his second point, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, his third way of saying it, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? Point of the Holy Spirit again is, uh, Paul's point here is the Holy Spirit was given to us and the love of God is poured out through the Holy Spirit into your soul, into your person, in, in your capacities to understand. And you have to understand, I didn't start this. I not only didn't earn it, but I didn't bring anything to the table. But Paul is not trying to hold us down to say, see what sinners you are. He's already done that in the chapters that have gone before. This is the benefit now of knowing if it was that bad, how much more wonderful will it be in a relationship in which you don't have to earn it? So, he demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, there we go, Dayenu, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God future. Look how much he loved you when you did nothing. If that's the case, how much more will his salvation keep you from the wrath to come? If he put this earnest down, if Christ paid the price, he's going to make sure you're saved. You're not going to get lost along the way. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, his fourth way of saying it, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Okay? Basic argument. Paul's thrown it out there, and that's the basic point up here. If he's done that, how much more, how much more, how much more will he not also preserve you and not let you perish? That's the point. All right, let's go to page two and dive into our text more formally. And hope does not disappoint, but the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What do we have then? We have the witness of the indwelling Spirit that we are loved by God. How do we understand that? I've simply broken down that verse and said, because the love of God has been poured out, because the hope spoken of in the preceding verses, when it said we hope in the Lord, we exult in the Lord, we have the hope of those things finds its origin in the work of the Spirit in pouring out the love of God in our hearts. I'm going to say this another way, make this really simple back. In the verses that preceded it, we were told that we exalt in our future, our trials and our future. What Paul is telling us here is that hope did not come from us even. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Why doesn't that hope disappoint? Why do we fail to stop hoping? Why is hope not something that runs into a dead end? Because the Holy Spirit's come and been poured out inside of you so as to continue to tell you to hope. 
Even hope comes from the Holy Spirit. Salvation is of the Lord, and so is hope as well. The love of God has been poured out in our souls. It's the reassuring truth of God's objective love for us demonstrated in the death of Christ. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Is there a difference in the life of a believer between the Holy Spirit and the soul? Does the Holy Spirit occupy the soul, or are they two different? Great question. The question is, does the Holy Spirit occupy the soul, and um, what's the difference within that? I'm going to draw you a picture, and it will solve everything. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, okay, we'll make it a girl. Um, there she is. Oh. No, no. Don't take. <laughs> Super happy. Okay. Wow, never mind. Okay. She has a collar on, okay? It's going down now. The, the soul. <laughs> the soul is made up of the mind and the will and the affections. What is our soul? It's that which our person. We can think, we can choose, we can feel and desire. That's part of the Imago Dei being in the image of God. Our soul is our person. So our whole person. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit does not become our soul. So it's not an ontological thing. When the Holy Spirit came in us, he didn't become the soul. So the Holy Spirit is not the soul. We, are, we still have a soul. Secondly, the Holy Spirit did not take over these three capacities in such a way that they couldn't, they couldn't sin. We know that, right? We know that we're allowed to sin. And yet he works with those capacities in his various ministries, like illumination. The ministry of illumination, he helps you understand the word, right? The, the ministry of the filling of the Holy Spirit has to do with control. And he, and he takes control. The Holy Spirit will take control at a season when you yield it to him. But the Holy Spirit is not us. And the Holy Spirit does not permanently take over those pieces. If he did, then we'd be in heaven <laughs> uh, in a way. So we are still acting and doing, and we are making free moral choices now as saved people. But the Holy Spirit is working on those things. He's come to permanently dwell. And he's working behind the scenes to motivate, to encourage. And part of that motivation is read the Bible. Yeah. Right? We have to act too. And so the Word of God is the way the author, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures through the prophets. Mm -hmm. And so he said, read the book. And then he helps us understand the book. Mm -hmm. And the book is what... God uses to transform the mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? And so all of that is part of what the Spirit is doing, but he uses the book, and then he uses his ministries to bring the book into the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So I don't know if that's helpful or if I'm not even answering your question. You're like, no, it was more simple. <laughs> no, I think I think that you explained it well, that okay. basically they're still separate, but the Holy Spirit influences these parts or aspects of... That is a really well said, yeah, influence, I think, is, yeah. is the thing. Well, you used that word. I told oh, you. Oh, <laughs> I was brilliant, John. <laughs> of course I said that. Um, so, exactly. And so, we will get, more willing, in chapter 6, 7, and 8, Paul describes the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the believer, particularly chapter 8, as we know, because that's where he's going. He's like, now, how does this actually work in practice? Good question. All right. Because the love of God has been already accomplished fact, begun at the moment of our conversion with ongoing effects. The Holy Spirit was given to us. He, it has been the truth that he's already poured it out. This is not a daily occurrence. It has continued ramifications. The, the spring is open, but the spring was open the day you were saved, and the Spirit poured out all of this, has poured out. Guys, this word here is to understand it's not a little trickle. Okay? It's a massive outpouring in every part, every capacity to remind you in your desires, in your affections. God is working in a way through those to help you love what you should love in your mind so you believe what you should believe. The Holy Spirit is working the love of God into you to keep telling you two things. Christ has done everything. You're good. Yeah, but what if I, you're good. I think the biggest point I would say, and I've said to myself this week in this text, 
is that if I really truly understand this text, I am understanding that the Holy Spirit is telling me that you didn't have anything to bring to the table, so what makes you think you do now? And you can't keep your salvation by being a good person. Yes, evidence. Yes, fruit. We're getting there, okay? Hold on for that. Chapter 6 to 8 talks about fruit and evidence and whatever. But not at the expense of identity. This chapter and next are all about being in union with Christ. In Christ, you're in Christ. And in that place, you are secure in what God has done. So I'm not going to bring anything. You know, you start feeling as a Christian sometimes. I would have thought that I was going to be farther along by now. I became a Christian in 1977, 45 years ago. And you would think at the time when you get, you're getting discipled, you're starting to witness people, the Spirit's doing mighty things, you're thinking, you're thinking your trajectory. Mm-hmm. Going to be the Apostle Paul. <laughs> but then you get to be 63 years old like I am, and it's, I can't find my car keys in the morning. <laughs> A little bit of disparity. The, the Spirit pours out into us to continuously remind us, you are loved, you didn't earn this, even your hope comes from the Holy Spirit. And all of this is to tell you that He did it, not you. And you're just fine with the Lord. Now, am I saying you're just fine if you're sinning? That's a whole other chapter. Right? Chapter 6 starts out with this question. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, that'd be the logical question if you hear the Apostle Paul for the first five chapters. In fact, if you hear me preach Paul properly, you should be concerned I'm preaching a very easy gospel and just to tell you you're fine with the Lord. You should hear that as a message through the first five chapters. Why? Because that's what Paul's saying. He's not telling you how to be saved He's all the time. He's telling you, this is what God has done. Chapter 6 will say, now that that's true, should we go back? Is, is sinning more a sure circuit to get more grace? Because that's what the first five chapters told you. When you were terrible, God gave you amazing grace. You could logically think, so I should act terrible so that I get more attention. You're like a bad child. <laughs> But Paul is warning us in the next chapter. So stay with this, though. The logical conclusion of this would be to say, Paul, you're making this too easy. No, God made it easy. God made it easy. I use this term poured out, the little diagram in the middle or the picture, rather. And I just wanted to note this word is used in multiple places in the New Testament. In Revelation 16, when the bold judgments are poured out on the earth, it's God's wrath poured out on the entire earth. Same word. And then the Spirit was poured out. Acts chapter 2. God says in the book of Joel, and then in Acts chapter 2 through Peter, the Spirit will be poured out, beginning with the day of Pentecost. Poured out, not just trickled out. Then that Spirit in us, Paul is saying in this chapter, that Spirit who was poured out is going to pour love out inside of you. Guys, you're like a 1967 love bus. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> within, now, where is this love poured out? Is this just a general blob of love? It's within our hearts, in our very souls. The term can mean the whole person in our heart, or sometimes an aspect of the whole person, such as the mind or the affections. When the word heart is used in the New Testament, it either usually is the whole in your heart, the person. Or sometimes it's talking about the way you think in your heart, or the way you feel or passions in your heart, the desires of your heart may aspect it. The point of it is, though, where was this poured out? Within your soul, within your heart, in those capacities. And where did it come from? Through the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God into the whole being so as to produce hope. Because we are so assured of the love of God, we enthusiastically boast of the glory of God in the gospel, in the life to come, and in our present trials, which have the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. That's a long way that I've said this. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to be the one who produces assurance. 
And then finally it ends with, who was given to us. It was a gift. The Spirit was given as a down payment pointing to a future glory. You know what's cool on this page is the font that I have at the bottom of the page. If you wear glasses and you take them off, if you can still read that, you can drive home today. All right, but. Yeah, Ann. Holy Spirit was given to us as a gift, and yet the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, and that'll come later on. Amen. Amen. That's right. Romans 12. Good point. It's Again, he was poured out in general to those who were believers, and then he begins pouring out. Exactly. Exactly. All right. A couple of the verses that remind us of this gift is Ephesians chapter 1. Why was the Holy Spirit given as a gift? As a down payment in Ephesians 1. In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I believe I said last week that this word here for the pledge of the inheritance is the Greek word that is equivalent to what I would call a engagement ring, a symbol given as a down payment that you intend to come and have the final wedding as a symbol publicly, but you give the engagement ring. Uh, the concept also is putting something in layaway back in the day, you know, for those of us who lived that age, you know, now you just buy stuff on Amazon or you, or you, or you click the button that says, try it first, right? <laughs> All right, you know, but in layaway village, uh, you know, you'd put some money down and then come back later to purchase the whole thing. This is the concept here. The Holy Spirit was given as the down payment to assure us. Again, it's about assurance. Of assurance of what? You're going to heaven. God is coming back. God is going to save you completely. This is not just something you're doing now. You're not doing religion. It's a relationship. Everything's good. And the work of the Holy Spirit in us is a continuous reminder that God has put an inheritance within us that he intends to redeem. Um, SNH green stamps? Wow. People like throwback. Anybody under the age of 100 <laughs> will not know what those are, but no. I grew up in SNH green stamp village, right? Okay. Yeah, I was born in Massachusetts. My parents used SNH green stamps. What are they for those few of you who don't know what they are? Uh, just simply another redemption plan, right? Okay, exactly. You go to the grocery store and uh, you buy stuff and you have a little booklet and every time you buy something, they put a stamp back in the day in your SNH green stamp book and it would fill up the book. And when you filled up the book, you could come back and redeem it for special stuff like a plate or a Hummel figurine or something, right? You know, really important stuff, all right? I still have a copy of an SNH green stamp booklet from when I was a kid in the 60s. I'm not a big collector person, but I have it. It, meant, it was a comfort thing for me. I remember my parents using these, you know? The point of it is, think of the picture of paying something in advance so that you can redeem it or cashing in at the end. This is what it meant in Ephesians 1. And then finally in Romans 8, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Very good message last week by Pastor Crabtree on a spirit of adoption. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Assurance. And if children, heirs also. See, that's the beauty. I think that's what Pastor Crabtree did a good job with last week is just being adopted doesn't mean you're a second-class citizen in your family. Some of you have probably been adopted, or you, I, know, I know a number of you have adopted children. I do not have adopted children, but my concept of that, knowing people who adopt children, is they treat them like their own children. Why? Because they are adopted as their children. And that's the point of this passage. If we're children, we don't look up to the other children who are the heirs, and then we sit in the back 
if you're children of God, you're heirs also. You will reign and rule under the lordship of Jesus Christ in his eternal kingdom. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Pastor Crabtree also made the point, none of us are becoming little Jesuses. We're not equal with God. But God in his grace has made us children, heirs, and the kind of heirs, it's not just heirs of like, you get the bicycle and Johnny gets the mansion. (laughs) But heirs with Christ. Now what does that mean? Not the same authority, but we get to enjoy the kingdom, his entire kingdom. That's incredible. What's the point of Romans 8 for us today? If you're led by the Spirit, he's telling you this. Do you know that of yourself? It's good. God has laid down the enemy thing. He loves you. The work is already accomplished. You're not going to fall into God's wrath. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, you have a glorious future. Hey, man, the Ravens could lose today. But you're still going to get to go to heaven. And if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him, points back or points to our one we did last week, that is God uses trials to bring us through them to show us that a future glory awaits us. Yeah, it says, Dave Doyle is perhaps the greatest teacher who ever lived. And, um, and a small basket is at the... <laughs> and there's a small basket at the back to put financial endowments in. So, so Anne, if you just go ahead and do that on the way out, that'd be good. Yeah, so, um, it, says, it says the following. It's a quote by Jonathan Edwards. Grace, that is grace in our lives that we experience through the Holy Spirit. Grace is the seed of glory the dawning of glory in the heart, and therefore grace is the earnest of the future future inheritance. It's another way of saying Ephesians chapter 1. When we experience God's grace and the work of the Spirit, Romans 8, we are led by the Spirit, that grace, that reality, because it's a grace gift, hope is a gift, faith is a gift, love is a gift, all of that, because of those gifts of grace, when we experience them, they're just one more indicator light on the dashboard of our salvation that the engine is well. All right. Yeah. All right. Page three. Best day ever. Man, we're going to heaven. Hallelujah. It's a pretty good deal. <laughs> now I won't go in that. Sorry. I'll go on the top of page three. So a new assurance from God continued, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still helpless, now we're back in that part, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I think it's a picture of Galatians, that in just in the right moment God sent forth his son. Um, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die, or dare even to die. That is the idea there, and very simple, without trying to break down all the phraseology. Um, If you just picture that in a military situation, someone taking a bullet for another person, or a World War II illustration, one soldier falling on a grenade so his comrades are not killed. People do heroic things for other people. People do die for other people. Paul's acknowledging that. Don't take too much into the righteous and the good thing. He's saying uh, for a converted person versus a, a good person, the point Paul's trying to make is... Look, in heroic measure, someone might be willing to sacrifice their life for a good person. Right? But would you give up your son or daughter, if you're a parent, in exchange for a heinous criminal who's a mass murderer? Right? That's the point Paul's making. Hey, somebody might be willing to die for somebody in a heroic way for a good purpose. But God died for you when you were a terrible person. That's the difference between the kind of death that Christ died. He died for people who were his enemies and were heinous criminals. And God the Father gave up his son for such. So that's the point. For verse 7 again. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. 
But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No reason to die for us. No good people. Well, I have to do it then. Paul's point here in verses 6 to 8. That's it. Class is over. <laughs> um, Paul's, Paul's point here in 6 to 8 is pretty simple. We didn't earn it, and God did it while we were at our very worst. Many of you were here for the beginning of this class, and we're in chapter 3 where we talked about total depravity. As you see on the left side, I put in big orange background. We're going to look at Romans 3, 10 to 20 quickly. We're going to have to revisit that. Why? That's Paul's point. <laughs> while we were ungodly, while we were no good. If you're just joining this course, I hope that this is helpful. It'll be a quick review. But what is Paul talking about? He's talking about total inability. The inability to actually do anything on our behalf. Don't lose that. Stay with me. And here we go. So number two, under that thing, we have the witness of the death of Christ that we are loved by God. What are the keys to understanding this? His use of the words helpless, the ungodly, while we were yet sinners. And he demonstrated this to us because we couldn't do anything. If you remember, Romans 3, 10 to 20, on the left side, it says this. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their teeth are swift to shed blood. Their feet, rather. Uh, that might be too. <laughs> Destruction and misery. That's a two-year-old biting you. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And verse 20, and because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We've been through that passage, but I encourage you to look at that uh, little boxed-in area on the right side, and that is a summary of what we just looked at. Before Christ saved us, our standing was we were not righteous. Our minds we did not understand. Our affections, none who seeks for God, we did not value him. Our plans, we've all turned aside from God's plan. Our merit, we've become useless. Our works, none who does good. Our words, throat, tongue, lips, mouth. Our walk, their feet are swift to shed blood. Our wake, we leave behind us destruction and misery in our path. Our way, the path of peace they, we have not known. And our worldview is no fear of God before their eyes. That is our picture before God saved us. So again, when we witness to others, no matter how much they seem like they're good people and they're running the salvation, not salvation army, the, the goodwill or the whatever, or they're doing something in the name of God, everyone is not only a sinner, but totally unable to please God and to reconcile it. So the middle of page three, it is not merely that man sins, but that man sins because he's a sinner. That's Paul's point. This is not a collection of simply saying you're a bad person, but rather you cannot, you do not, they will not. Number two, the effect of sin on the human race is just as God had told Adam and Eve, you will surely die. Number three, mankind is dead in their transgressions and sins. And number four, I know this is a quick review. This is the twofold concept of what we call total depravity and total inability. We're going to get rid of Happy Harriet. And we're going to put up a sad person. Who is it? Sulking Sal? I don't know. <laughs> All right, back to the mind, will, affections. Whoops. Mind, will, affections. What we looked at in Romans 3 and what we're quickly reviewing is this. Every person is unable to please God, and we're in a closed system spiritually. We're dead towards God. Death is not annihilation, but separation, as we know. We are separated from God in our minds. We do not understand, according to this passage. We don't desire God, and we never choose the right path about the Lordship of Christ and God's eternal purposes. People do religious things, and they do good things, but they are dead towards God's true gospel. 
unless God does something. God must come and bring energy into a dead system. We've already done the total depravity thing, doing this quickly for those who weren't here possibly. And so what Paul is telling us in Romans 3, and what he's reminded us in chapter 5, is that we're unable, we're we're helpless, we could do nothing. And it was therefore what God had to do to overcome our deadness. And so that's the big thing. It's not just that we have sinned, but that we are sinners by nature and unable to do it. And you're like, yes, of course. Just remind us. That's the point of this. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, Melvin. What's that? A question about sin. Did this sin start in heaven with the, the devil rebelling against God or at the garden with Eve? <coughs> Good question. Melvin's question is did sin start with the devil in heaven or at the scene in the garden. Yeah, it started in heaven. The first sin in the universe was in heaven. Uh, Satan and his angels, or Lucifer and his third of the angels, they rebelled first because, of course, as you know. And so when Lucifer shows up in the garden, sin had not come to earth yet. And in Romans 5, the passage we haven't gotten to yet, as you probably know, verses 12 to 21, we're going to be reminded that it was through the sin of Adam, one sin, that sin was brought into this world. If you think of when Satan came into the world to meet with Eve, you might think sin entered the world through Satan. But sin is not a thing. It's not something you can put in a bag, right? It's not something you can carry. So Satan didn't bring sin with him. Sin is is moral active decisions against the lordship of God and against his law. They're, They're conscious decisions to do things against him. And so the first sin in the world under Adam's jurisdiction uh, was through Adam. And again, Eve kind of sins first, if you will, chronologically, except it looks like, but actually it's, you know, Adam is the representative, you know all of this, and that's why he has accounted that. But secondly, it's the silence of Adam. As the leader, he should have been saying, Eve, no, don't do that. But apparently he's like, and he's like, yeah, sure. So his sin is twice, you know, if you will, that he was supposed to leave. But yeah, sin came through Satan but the first sinner in the human race, of course, is Adam. So. And then he blamed Eve. Then he blamed Eve. <laughs> That's good. That's been gone. Yeah. Basically, right. Uh, the woman you gave me. Blame God. Blame God yeah. that he gave me. And then it was, oh, it was the serpent. Yeah. And now we just say it's the government. <laughs> <laughs> they made me do it. All right, bottom of the page three then, to read, just to define more quickly, what is total depravity then? Total depravity is that every capacity, mind, will, and affections of man has been, become spiritually polluted and dead towards God. Still active, but dead towards God. The mind, the will, the affections, spiritual sight, spiritual hearing, spiritual understanding are all dead. Death is not annihilation, but separation. What is total inability? Well, if that is true, every capacity has been caused to be dead. Then we're unable to do anything about our situation. Total inability is man does not have any ability to remedy their condition before God. All right, bottom of page three. All men are totally depraved. Their wills are in bondage to depraved minds and depraved affections or emotions. Men's wills are free to choose anything from their minds believe in their affections desire. Isn't that good? Men are making free choices inside a closed system. Anything their mind tells them is good, they're free to choose it. Anything they desire, they're free to choose it with their will. So they're making free choices inside a closed system. They're always going to choose against the lordship of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Free choices, and I'll continue. Unfortunately, the scripture tells us that all men's minds are enemies of God and cannot be otherwise except through God's regenerative power. Also, scripture tells us that all men hate God and no one seeks after God. We just read that. The net result is that while men are making free moral choices with their wills, they're only choosing off the buffet of their fallen, God-hating, non-understanding minds and affections, which will always inform their will to choose against the lordship and glory of God. Thus all men are responsible for their choices, freely made.
Now, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is then going to talk about sovereignty and responsibility and how that all works. If you've got a lot of questions about that, how does that all work? And how could God choose and man's sinner? How could he be capable? How could he be culpable for his sins if God chose the world? And in chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul addresses those questions. Stay on the gospel bus here. All right, page four. Woo, working through this. Verses 9 and 10 then. This is that third aspect of assurance. Nine, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. It's a much more day. So number three, we have the promise of freedom from the wrath of God to come keys to understanding here is much more than Paul's argument is really cool argumentum a fortiori all right I did it I did an RC sprawl <laughs> literally it means an argument from the stronger reason is a form of argumentation that draws upon existing confidence in a proposition to argue in favor of a second proposition that is held to be implicit in, and even more certain than the first. Here would be two examples I put. If a person can afford to spend $100 on something, we can safely assume that they'd be able to afford an item that was only $10. Now, it's not logically necessity. A person may have only 100, may have a $100 check on them, and could use that. You know, I'm making up an op, you know, and they couldn't split it into tens, Technically, but we could say if a person has the wealth to do 100, they're probably able to do a 10. And secondly, if a person can run a four-minute mile, though we know that the, the record is like three minutes and 43 seconds or whatever, but if a person could run a four-minute mile, then we assume that they could run a five-minute mile, right? They could do less than that. Paul's argument is simply that, the much mores. If God did all that and he's got a million dollars, He's going to be able to buy you a candy bar at Disney World or whatever, okay? He's got this, okay? If he sent his eternal son to take on human flesh and die in the complexion of the cross work of Christ, he's got the rest of this. But how do I know I'm going to get to heaven? I want to say something about assurance on that regard. When we look at the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 about all those saints in the Old Testament who amazing faith in all those circumstances... And we look at their, what they had to believe. We often say to ourselves, man, look at their faith. I mean, they had no evidence that that was going to take place. Noah had never seen rain come out of the sky, but he believed God. I'm going to say this about assurance of salvation. Assurance comes from within. The Holy Spirit is telling you you're a child of God. But you need to believe that. Uh, doubt is one thing. Unbelief is another. We all have doubts. Am I truly saved? Or, man, how could I be living like this? Or whatever. The doubts come and go. But unbelief is saying, I can't possibly be a Christian, even though I've trusted in Christ as my Savior. At the end of the day, assurance is believing that what Jesus said is true. If you believe on me, you will have eternal life. And it is not based on all the other stuff and the fruits that we're going to get to. Your salvation, bottom line assurance, is based on the foundation of the promise of God, not on the fruit you bear. That is true. God has ordained what will happen. But one thing, and we're going to get there, Lord willing, and I'm sure you have, I don't know if you have questions or you're making a statement, but one of the, one of the beauties that what we're not saying and what the Bible is not saying is that God makes people go to hell. And so the implication, and we, man, we've got a long way to build this road. But it's not that everybody wants to go to heaven, right? And God says, no, you, you can't go to heaven even though you want to. But you people over here are going to get to go to heaven. That would be unfair if everyone wanted to believe. That's why Paul spends so much time before he talks about election. He spends all these chapters to tell us everyone deserved to go to hell. No one was good. God's election is a mercy so when we get to Romans chapter 9, Paul will describe election as a mercy. He will say, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Um, again, if we start with election, 
as a conversation in a vacuum where we don't talk about our depravity and God's mercy in saving us, then it does seem unfair if you start there. Well, how could God just do what he wants? Well, God, but, you know, but, but, so I won't address it further than that, but to say, you're right. God has chosen those he is going to save. And God also, in his mercy, saved out of all of us who don't deserve it. And so Paul's point will be to us continuously, like it is today, that the Holy Spirit was given to us to reassure us, not only didn't we deserve it, but the amazing reality that when you have moments when you look around and you say, why me? How could I possibly have been saved when I know people who are 50 times better people than me? And it just is, because it's not based on that, right? It's the mercy of God and his wisdom. And so when we get to Romans 9, we'll try to adjust. Well, 9, 10, and 11. Yeah, uh, Julie. That's a good question. Julie's asking, when an unbeliever appears to want to go to heaven, they're like, man, I really want to believe. I really want to. And her question is, is that an idol in their mind or whatever? Um, you know, at the end of the day, people, I think actually your, your daughter asked this question, similar question, <clears throat> about five weeks ago, because it kind of flashback, you know. Uh, but people uh, have religion, Romans chapter 1 and 2, they have idols of the heart, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So whatever heaven they're going to without God's gospel makes them an enemy of God. Because the king is, if you put it in the king language, the king has invited him to the banquet, that, that picture that he gave, you know, the gospel. And Jesus said, the king has invited everybody to the banquet. But some people show up in non-wedding clothes, their view of going to heaven, their, their religion, their way of doing it. Others simply said, I'm not going, right? But you're right, uh, you can have a false religion. There are many religions. Uh, but when a person says, I really want to go to heaven, um, but they don't want to do it on God's terms. That, that's just kind of the demonstration, you know, of the rebellion. So, well, yeah, would, Steve. I would say when they try to enter the sheep gate through an, that's right. anywhere other than the door. That's right. That's right. When you try to come in through another door. Um, good. All right. Let's keep, let's keep going. Page four. Um, and Jesus said in Matthew 7 regarding all of this, so if you, despite being evil... Uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Why is that passage in there? How much more? Paul also said in Romans 8, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's the verse that we ought to... If you're going to get a tattoo, I mentioned another verse, (laughs) Romans 4, 5. But if you're getting a tattoo on, am I secure in Christ? The answer is yes. And God will not give you just small things after he gave you the big thing. All right, John Piper at the bottom of page four. Much more, we're saved from wrath. What does he say about that? Now do you see how this phrase, much more, is functioning? Children, consider this illustration, he said while preaching. You move with your parents into a new neighborhood, and during the first night, a fire breaks out in your house. Your neighbor, let's call him Mr. Peterson, sees the smoke calls the fire department, breaks a window, wakes everybody up, crawls inside, gets your mom and dad to safety, but they have passed out. He hears you calling from an upstairs bedroom where the firefighters, uh, before the firefighters arrive, he dashes up the stairs, wets a blanket in the bathtub, plunges through flames in the hall, wraps you in the blanket and brings you safely outside with terrible burns on his arms and face. Over the next months, you become very close friends with your Mr. Peterson and visit him in the hospital. And one morning after he gets home, you ask him, Mr. Peterson, will you come over this afternoon and show me a new trick with my yo-yo? Mr. Peterson, (laughs) just go with this. Mr. Peterson Peterson says, sure, I'd love to. But during the day, you start to wonder if he really will come. And you say to your father, I'm not sure Mr. Peterson will come this afternoon. He might forget, or maybe he really doesn't care about a little kid like me. And then your father says, you know what? If Mr. Peterson was willing to run through the fire to save you at the risk of his own life and getting terrible burns, how much more will he be willing to come over and show you a new trick on your yo-yo right this afternoon? If he did the hard thing for you, then all the more surely he will do the easy thing. So if Mr. Peterson risked his 
life to save you when he didn't even know you yet? How much more now that you're friends will he keep his word and come to play with you? And God has done the hardest thing in sacrificing his son to reconcile his enemies. How shall he not save his friends? He will. Much more. It's good, isn't it? It's good. I wonder if God will get me through this trial. All right, page five. Uh, so I've put a little, di- uh, again, I keep wanting to say diagram, a little, little chart up on top of page five. That's really the first thing I drew up on the board, and that is God's assurance of his love is through the Holy Spirit who'd been poured out into our lives, and the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God And there's a present tense reality that the indwelling of the Spirit is the present tense assurance that you're saved. Those who are walking present tense in the Spirit should be, oh, I've got the Spirit. Secondly, the pouring out of the Spirit in our lives has a past tense reality. You were saved, look what he already did. And the future tense of what the Holy Spirit's pouring out of love does, we are not going to be under God's wrath. We're going to be saved by Christ's life. The point of it all is it's a gift. The Holy Spirit was a gift. He was given to you. Christ died for you as a gift, and the future exemption from wrath is a gift of God. So we're saved by his life. Paul introduces the doctrinal and practical theme of union with Christ. In chapter 6, Paul will begin to develop this truth as a key component of sanctification and service, and I just simply want to read again Romans 6, 1, and a few other verses. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves <clears throat> excuse me, to sin. For he, has, for he who has died is freed from sin. Well, that's where we're going, Lord willing, in two weeks, Romans chapter 6. And it's Paul's implication. If all of this is true and you're in Christ, not in Adam, that's how chapter 5 will end, then this is true of you in Christ. And it will be the basis. Identity in Christ, union with Christ, is the basis of our behavior, not the other way around. Okay? All right. I will. I've got 15 minutes. I don't know if I have 15 minutes of your attention, but we'll do this. (laughs) Middle of page 5 to complete our point. And verse 11, we have a new worship of God. New assurance, new worship. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let me say it this way. Why is this a new promise? Because it goes back to the exalting God. The other one was we exalt in the hope of the glory of God and we exalt in our trials. This one's really simple and straightforward. Not only this, he says, but we exalt in God. Joyful explanation, being in God, our worship has now turned God-centered, is the point, instead of just religion. We boast in God because of all that Christ has done. We glorify God for who he is, not simply for the gifts he's given us. God's glory through Christ has become our chief end. But even in this, God has rewarded us with joy for pursuing him. We all know the shorter catechism, Westminster, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jonathan Edwards, in picking that up, said, God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory, and I have a passion for my joy in that glory. And that these two are one passion. Uh, I almost said how many. I don't need a raise of hands. But many of you have read Piper's material, John Piper's material on this. And what he calls Christian hedonism. Now, I don't want to get into, I know, yeah. I don't want to get into a whole theology of Piper. I'm not a big Piperian or something. But where where Jonathan Edwards and, and Piper in this, Piper in the past generation here, have reminded us of this that it is our joy flows from the greatest command God is giving us, and that is to love him. And Piper has a great phrase in which he just simply says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And, you know, how many of my works, 
Do you love God? Are you satisfied in his presence? Are you finding reality in his person? Well, that brings the most glory to him because it demonstrates that his person is worthy of worship, not simply his gifts. And, you know, the illustration I give all the time because it's the one I've seen happen many times in the grocery store. It just seems like when you're up there, you've got the cart, there's children in the cart, and they put everything right there where the children could be tempted to, 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 to sin against their parents. And, and they put it at the lowest possible level. And so the child's there, I want that. I've got to have the penguin with the chicken on it. And i got to have that. I want that really bad. And you see all that happening. And you don't think totally, hey, that's a bad child. You think, why isn't the parent doing something? And when we complain against God and when we're not satisfied with God and when we're like, I want the thing and you're not giving me the thing, it demonstrates that, you know, God is not that trustworthy or God's not satisfying. Um, there's some, you know, back to our illustration last week in the refrigerator, it's not in there. When our lives magnify God by make, he is the treasure. Christ is the treasure. Not the stuff. Not the religion. Not the, Christ is the treasure. That begins to show other people that God is wonderful. God is glorified. And so C.S. Lewis said it. You, many of you read this illustration. One of my favorites at the bottom of page five. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, appeals to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the, op, the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant or the Stoics and in no part from the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, we go to the next page. is I believe in the book of Numbers, but when God says to Israel, this is why you're going to be disciplined because you, you refuse to be happy. Or as Carla has said to me on a few occasions, when you see disobedient children and something the parent could do, she may whisper to me, spank that child and make them happy. <laughs> so at the bottom of or the top of page six, then, to kind of finish this point. As we noted earlier in our notes on Romans 5, God is most glorified when we are conformed to the image of his Son. Being conformed to the image of Christ has to do with both Christ-likeness. How do we glorify God? We become like Jesus, Romans chapter 8. And Christ-centeredness, our life reflects what Christ would do. Christ-likeness refers to our character and is perhaps best seen through the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, and Christ-centeredness refers to our passion to live for Christ, who is our life. Paul's example should help clarify for us what a Christ-centered life looks like. And I'll close with this. I put this together out of Philippians 1, simply thinking, when I'm thinking of what does it mean to bring glory to God by exalting Christ, becoming like him, what would my life look like? I'm only going to read the points, not the passages, and then close. Well, actually, that's not totally true, because I have to read some of them. But Christ was Paul's model. Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. Christ was Paul's master. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Christ was Paul's message. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Next page. For Christ, when, he, when Paul said, Christ is my life, 
This is what he's talking about. Christ was Paul's mission. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Next verse there, 1 Corinthians 9. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. 2 Timothy. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Number five, Christ was Paul's means. I have been crucified with Christ, but it's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now have in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ was Paul's meaning. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was, Christ was Paul's merit. And may be found in him, not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Christ was Paul's motive. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. For one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press forward or toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Christ was Paul's measuring stick. How did he know he was doing life in its most general purpose? Roman, uh, Philippians 3. For whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. We are destroying arguments and all the arrogant raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So that final point in verse 11 is, We now have a new worship that is God-centered, not us-centered. And it's that we become more like Christ. We act in Christ's manner. Those are reflections of what a worshipful life with Christ is the same. Let me pray.